girl next door. Hey, Tamara. Well, hello. Oh, Hi. Hello. <laughs> we keep talking at the same time. Good evening, Stephanie Podolik. Hey, Tamara Robbins Griffith. How nice are to you? see you, even though it's on, what are we doing? FaceTime? FaceTime. I love the, in our recording system, I'm T-R-G-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-
And then I started reading. It was actually when I was, you know, trying to get more of the curl out and get that silky smooth look. I had keratin treatments on my hair. And keratin, like if you spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a keratin treatment, you don't want sulfates to strip it away. So I did a bit of a purge of all my sulfate shampoos and started paying attention to ingredients in shampoo. So that keratin treatment, which ironically was straightening my hair, forced me to take a good look at my shampoo and get rid of some of the harsh surfactants. So I then I stopped doing keratin, got the curly bangs, started wearing my hair more curly and doing some trying some co-washes which I've tried and like. But I don't really understand the difference between some of these curly hair sulfate-free shampoos and co-wash. Like where's the line because curly girl method calls for avoiding silicone and sulfates and all these other things. But there are a lot of those type of shampoos that I don't think are considered a co-wash. So I kind of go back and forth between gentle shampoos and co-washing. That's a great question. Like if you're using sulfate-free shampoo, what's the problem? Like you may as well do them both. Well... I mean, maybe if you're doing a co-wash, it saves time. Maybe if you have a co-wash, because they are quite conditioning, like you don't need to do a mask. I tend to do the co-wash and then follow up with a mask anyway, because I'm so in the habit of doing shampoo and then conditioner. Yeah. So maybe if you're doing co-wash, you could save a step. And then I do think there are shampoos that are that may be sulfate-free, but they do have a bunch of other ingredients that could be harsh for curly hair. Yeah. Like I feel even when I co-wash, I still need to shampoo every week or every, well, yeah, every week and then co-wash in between. Someone can tell us, tell us the answer, please. But I think clarifying is a big deal too, for people who just co-wash. So it is the idea to use some kind of shampoo that maybe does have sulfates, but maybe it's once every two weeks. Maybe it's, I don't know, once a month. And so there's a whole category of shampoos that are known as clarifying shampoos for people who don't, who avoid sulfates and all these other things or co-wash. Yeah. And I also didn't know that a lot of these conditioners you're supposed to keep in your hair and not rinse out. Like, There was a conditioner I got at a salon last time I got a curly cut and she said, you put the conditioner in and then you add water to it, like a little bit of conditioner with a little bit of water and you sort of squish it in and that's how it activates and then you leave it and then it like nourishes your hair strand. I'd never done that before. It's got to say leave in. This wasn't a, like, yeah, it's, it's not a leave-in. It's just, that's what you do. That's what you're supposed to do with curly conditioner. Well, that is next level confusing because I, I, know. Would, I need big instructions that tell me not to wash it out. Or I also never pay attention when it says leave it in for 10 minutes. I'm too impatient. I, I always have to be like multitasking. I'm like, I can stand the conditioner in for five minutes while I wash my face and or shave my legs. Yeah. 
and this one's leaving forever and add water to it and then <laughs> till death walk do away. you part yeah <laughs> leave it in forever the end i'm sure it's wonderful i don't mean to disparage the brand i just want clarity from my products yeah fair enough it's a murky enough world out there with the beauty industry and even just hair care yeah well and as we know with curls you just try something new all the time and see what works Yeah, that's the name of the game. So we'll keep trying. And then when we find something magical, the magical miracle, what do they call it? Not utopia, like hair utopia, but like the holy grail of hair care products that works for us, then we will shout it from the rooftops. Definitely. It's your turn to go first today. I know. I'm excited. So the idea for my curl next door came to me during a little home reno project because Devin and I were installing a new light and it took forever and it was very cumbersome. But anyway, I ended up staring at a music album cover for about an hour while we were installing this light. And it was a vinyl that my brother-in-law gave me recently. It's Whitney Houston's original record. Oh, so good. So my CND is Whitney Houston. Yay! Yeah. And that particular vinyl, she's so young, bright-faced, gorgeous. It's it's not the one with her hair like slicked into a bun. It's yeah, her first one. Like I okay. think it's back in a bun. It's sort of hard to tell or if it's just really cut short. I'm going to Google it while you're talking because I I kind of have this picture in my mind. A little bit more about Whitney and thank you, Internet and Wikipedia, for the source material. Whitney is considered one of the most successful musicians ever. She's listed in the Guinness World Records as the most awarded female artist of all time and one of the best-selling recording artists. And during her career, she released seven studio albums and two soundtracks. Her crossover appeal on the popular music charts and her prominence on MTV really influenced several African-American artists that followed. She had a sad end, but today I'm mostly just going to talk about her career because I always, I remember when she passed away, that was the news headline and she had a really clunky last few years of life and it's so sad and it does such a disservice to everything she accomplished yeah she has a tremendous legacy so I mean I don't think that the difficulties like took away from that but you don't want to be remembered that way yeah and that's the tragedy of it actually that the tumultuous end sort of was did influence the legacy. It certainly influences how people remember her. So a bit more about her. She was born Whitney Elizabeth Houston in 1963. Both her mother and her brother were singers. Her musical influence and biology didn't stop there. Her first cousins were Dionne Warwick and Dee Dee Warwick. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Both huge in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. She also had incredible mentorship. Her godmother, Darlene Love, was also a singer. 
And she met Aretha Franklin as a young girl and Aretha became an honorary aunt. Aw, I'll take Aretha Franklin as an honorary aunt. Who wouldn't? Whitney sang in church as a child. She became a background vocalist in her teens and signed to a record label at the age of 19. But she had a couple other logs on the fire. In the early 80s, she also was a model. She was singing with her mother at Carnegie Hall and caught the eye of a photographer. And she ended up being the first woman of color to appear on the cover of Seventeen magazine. Oh, I wonder what year that was. I I read that magazine in the uh, 80s. Let me think. I think that was probably 81 or 82. I don't think I was reading it yet then, but yeah, she was gorgeous. Yeah. And she also appeared in Glamour, Cosmopolitan, and Young Miss. And she was also cast in a TV ad for Canada Dry. Canada Dry? Yep. Awesome. Her first two albums released in 1985 and 1987, both peaked at number one on the Billboard 200 and are among the best-selling albums of all time. And she's the only artist to have seven consecutive number one singles on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart from Saving All My Love For You. Remember that song? Yeah. So many of her songs are just epic. Yeah, actually, I hadn't realized how many of her songs I knew. Yeah. Another huge hit at that time was Where Do Broken Hearts Go? I don't know if Where I know that one. Broken hearts go. That's all I know. All right. I <laughs> Does want it you ring to a sing. Bell? Can you sing all the songs that were on the Billboard charts? <laughs> one after the other. Okay. I get so emotional, baby. baby. Every right. time I think, think of you. <laughs> the album cover for her 1987 album is incredible like her hair is yeah awesome her subsequent albums were equally successful yielding more number one singles including i'm your baby tonight and all the man that i need flash forward to 1992 she tried her hand at acting co-leading in the bodyguard da Do you remember that film? Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't think it was an amazing film. I remember the music from it. Like the music was that song from The Bodyguard was basically the equivalent of like Celine Dion's song for Titanic. Right. Like it's just it's the song is bigger than the way bigger than the movie. Yeah. And I I feel like in Legend, like that movie was pretty epic But you're right. It's not that the movie was so good. It's just that the music was so good. She has six songs on the soundtrack, including I Will Always Love You. That's the one. The money shot. That's the main squeeze. The money. That song became the best-selling physical single by a female in music history. That's how huge that film was because of the soundtrack. Yeah. The soundtrack won Grammy Awards... Or it won Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards. And it remains the best-selling soundtrack album of all time. 
She also starred in and recorded soundtracks for Waiting to Exhale and The Preacher's Wife. And The Preacher's Wife soundtrack was the best-selling gospel album of all time. So it was just award after award after award. She was just huge and very talented. However, during this time, she started to have personal issues, including drug dependency and a tumultuous marriage to Bobby Brown, who was a real POS. She was scattered. She'd arrive late for interviews and rehearsals. Sometimes she would sing the wrong songs during rehearsals. She canceled concerts and also in one instance was a no-show. A no-show at her own concert? Yeah, she was supposed to perform at a tribute event and she didn't show up. And was all of the sort of downward spiral, or did she, did all of this kind of addiction come after the bodyguard? Or what do we know if she struggled with it when she was younger at all? Yeah, it started in the research I did, it started at around that time and then just continued to get worse. She released her last album in 2009 and it did get some traction, but sadly, three years later, she passed away. She was 48. Wow. I don't know if I realized how young she was when she died. I know. It's very sad. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2020. And her first album, the one that I mentioned at the start of this, is listed on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time and on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's Definitive 200 list. That was a huge album. And you know what? I I could picture that cover as soon as you brought it up. There's something about the colors and her dress and her pose. And that second album too. Those first two albums I definitely had probably on cassette. And uh, yeah. Yeah. She was an extremely talented woman for sure. And she came out swinging like those first two albums were huge. So a few other factoids, she supported Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement. During her modeling career, she refused to work with agencies who did business with apartheid South Africa. She also created a charitable foundation called the Whitney Houston foundation for children And it raised funds for child homelessness, children with cancer or AIDS, and other issues of self-empowerment. So she was a good human. In 1991, get a load of this. She sang the American National Anthem at the Super Bowl. And Mm -hmm. it created a bit of controversy because she sang live, but the microphone was turned off and her pre-recorded song was played. And apparently that's pretty standard because... There's always tech issues and noise and stuff like that. So she was legit singing, but she got called out for it. But the organizers sort of were like, this is what we do. So move on. Anyway, the song ended up in the U.S. Hot 100 chart, giving Whitney Houston the biggest chart hit for a performance of the national anthem ever. It's kind of weird that people are like, I'm going to download or like listen to that version of uh, the national anthem exactly as a song for like just hanging out vacuuming my living room you got it party on a saturday night (laughs) yeah she donated all the proceeds to the red cross which is 
wonderful. And that particular performance is considered a benchmark for singers. She did it so well. The song was re-released after 9-11 and it peaked again on the one the Hot 100 chart at number six. So originally she recorded it in 1991 and then it peaked again, I guess, 10 years later. Wow. People loved her. People still love her. People still love her. Okay, I got a little bit more dirt here. Mm -hmm. She did a welcome home concert in partnership with HBO for the soldiers home from fighting in the Gulf War. And HBO ended up airing it for free and it garnered their highest ratings ever. Wow. Yeah. For HBO, that's pretty big because they have some epic shows. They do. Is this pre-Game of Thrones or... (laughs) It's so funny. I was wondering that too. (laughs) If the Game of Thrones finale competed for that honor, I don't know. She dated some big names before settling on Bobby Brown, including Jermaine Jackson. Hmm. And Eddie Murphy. Mm -hmm. I'm sure both of those choices probably would have been better. Yeah. Especially Eddie. I'll I'll go with Eddie. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) She met Bobby Brown at the 1989 Soul Train Music Awards. They dated for a few years and married in 1992 and then divorced in 2007. Bobby Brown was a bad apple. He got busted for drunk driving, drug possession, and battery after assaulting her. And he went to jail for a bit. And this part's really sad. They had one child who also had a very sad end. Their daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, died in 2015 at the age of 22. Mm. Same addiction issues? Unclear. My research said she was in the bathtub. She was found unconscious in the bathtub, which also is sad because that's how Whitney was found when she passed away. She was in a bathtub. And then the daughter was rushed to hospital and she was in a coma for a while. And then I think she died. Anyway, I don't remember the specifics. Mm -hmm. Okay, a few other things. Whitney's singing of I Will Always Love You which, side note, is a Dolly Parton cover, used a vocal technique called melisma. Melisma? Yeah. Do you know it? No. I thought it was um, vibrato, but maybe not. Okay, you tell me. Tell me. Explain it. Melisma is putting different notes into a single syllable. While she didn't invent the technique... It did inspire a host of imitators as it got into the mainstream in the 90s. When I Will Always Love You was sung originally, each word was one note. But when Whitney sang it, she sings multiple notes in each word. Okay, I'm going to give it a go. Yeah. I I will always love you. That's melisma. Beautiful melisma, Stephanie. <laughs> Whereas, but I get it. Dolly yeah. is more like, I will, will always love you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's a little interesting <laughs> sing-song fun fact. On MTV in the 80s, 
when Michael Jackson was considered to have broken the color barrier for men, she's considered to have broken it for black women. After her successful How Will I Know video, that's when she got on my radar. How will I know if he really, really loves, loves me? me? I fall I in love. To <laughs> <laughs> this is the musical episode of that's right. Girl Next Door. That's right. Subsequent artists such as Janet Jackson and Anita Baker credit Whitney for helping to pave the way for Black women to get their videos shown on MTV. She was known for her fashion and beauty styles. She had ever-changing hairstyles. In the early days, she had a short, low haircut. As mentioned on the album cover we talked about earlier, her second album, Whitney had cover art with a high, big volume ponytail. It was a bit brushed out, which created a halo effect. Super fun. This album featured I Want to Dance with Somebody. Ooh, I want to dance with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Then in 1986, she has a mullet. The curl shape was like a perm. Like she had a ton of hair, but it was cut like a mullet. It was super cool. As a matter of fact, mullets are in for curly-haired girls right now. Yes. I've seen some beautiful cuts. Yeah, it's true. It's a fact. We should we can post some mullets on Facebook and also definitely we'll show Whitney from that era because her makeup and all of the styling was kind of on point too. Yeah. Do you think I should get a mullet cut? I don't know. I think maybe pandemic is the best time to try it. If you can, like if things open up enough that you're allowed to go for masked haircuts, but it's still kind of a quiet life where you're mostly just working from home, then do the haircut. And if you don't love it, it's kind of easier to hide. Right? Okay. Keep tuning in, folks. Maybe next <laughs> time we'll talk about my mullet cut. Stephanie's new mullet. Get the mullet. <laughs> Just get so we have something mullet. to talk about. Get Hashtag the mullet. Get the mullet. <laughs> After the mullet, she, in the late 80s, she had shorter curls. It was really cute and framed her face, sort of just past her ears. And then she had other hairstyles later, like the pixie cut that had a bit of texture and wave. And then later she had really beautiful shoulder length, soft waves. That's the Whitney story. Incredible. Fabulous. Packed a lot into her short life. And her, like you said at the beginning, she was very successful and influential and she died too young. It's tragic. Very sad. And I think we think sometimes, oh, if somebody's wealthy or successful, they have a way out more easily than others from an abusive relationship or addiction. But that's not always the case. And, you know, money can't solve all these problems. And it is very sad. And she's arguably on a lot of top 10 lists for the greatest female singer of all time. I don't know if I would give it to her over someone like Aretha, but still, she's on, she's on up for contention in those, or consideration in those categories for sure. I'm glad yeah, you told the right. story. Who's your CND? Okay. Taking a slightly different tack, not in the um, music industry. Now, my CND is someone who I had not heard of 
I had not heard of this woman, but as soon as I did discover her, I was instantly impressed and transfixed by her and her story. So I'm going to tell you about Janet Mock. Nope. Okay. So she was born in March 10th, 1983. She's an American writer, television host, director, producer, and a transgender rights activist. So her debut book became a New York Times bestseller, and she's now a contributing editor for Marie Claire, among other things. So Janet Mock was born in Honolulu. Her father is African-American and her mother is half Portuguese, part Asian, and part Native Hawaiian. So she's got a gorgeous mix going on there between her two parents. And luckily, she lived, luckily for her, just because I think it must be beautiful, she lived for most of her youth in Hawaii with portions in Oakland, California, and Dallas. Now, she began her transition as a freshman in high school And she funded her medical transition by earning money as a sex worker as a teenager. So I don't know a lot about her family dynamics. And I'm not sure why she had to turn to sex work. But clearly, what's interesting about her story, and I have not read her novel where she speaks about this, but she knew from such a young age that she was her body her physiological body did not match up with who she felt she was. And she was very determined to make this happen. So despite doing some part-time sex work, she played volleyball in high school and she became close friends with another childhood friend named Wendy. They bonded and Wendy helped Janet express her femininity and really decide this is the path I want to go down. So interestingly, she chose her name, Janet, after Janet Jackson. So funny that you just (laughs) mentioned Janet Jackson. So I want to make a point here too, like in my telling of her story and also thanks to Wikipedia, but obviously she and her publicist know what's the story that's told there. But my intention is not to spend a lot of time talking about her as a child and telling you what name her parents gave her because it's just, it's disrespectful in a way to her. We don't need to know that name, that other name that she, she, didn't like that didn't match her in order to understand her story. Yeah, for sure. So she chose Janet Jackson or she chose Janet. (laughs) She chose Janet. Yeah. yeah. As a name. Janet Jackson would be a bit much. (laughs) (laughs) That's some real fan love right there. If it's Janet Jackson. (laughs) Right. Okay. So she just chose Janet as her name. She was the first person in her family to go to college And she underwent her gender confirming surgery in Thailand at the age of 18. So she was in the middle of her first year of college when she underwent the procedure. I don't know a lot about those actual procedures and, you know, how hard it is to recover from it while you're also trying to complete your BA. But she did in fashion merchandising from the University of Hawaii. Then she went on to get an MA in journalism from NYU. 
So after graduating from NYU, she studied journalism. She started working at People Magazine. She was a staff editor there for more than five years. And she started off as an editor and decided to become more of an advocate for trans rights when she came out publicly in 2011. And so she was working at People, but the article was in Marie Claire or Mary Claire, Marie Claire, written by a woman named Kierna Mayo, Mayo, Mayo. And it was written in Mock's voice. I'm not sure why they do that, but I guess that's a style of journalism in someone else's voice, but but clearly with someone else having a byline. Mock took issue with how the magazine represented her by stating that she was born and raised as a boy, And when she says she was always a girl and she says, I was born in what doctors proclaim is a boy's body. I had no choice in the assignment of my sex at birth. My genital reconstructive surgery did not make me a girl. I was always a girl. Mm -hmm. So in, in 2014, while she was promoting her book, which is called Redefining Realness, she reiterated that she did not choose the Mary Claire article title and found it to have many problems. And the editor of the piece, Leah Goldman, so there was a writer and editor, would later tweet in support of Mock. So the headline was called, I Was Born a Boy. Like, you know how magazines are, and it's like they want to have splashy headlines and cover lines that sound enticing. But, (laughs) you know, she's just come out publicly as trans. This is like, her big moment, she wants to become more of an advocate. And it's like, oh God. Interestingly, after all this, Mock then was hired as a contributing editor at Marie Claire. So they wrote this story about her. She was not pleased with the way it turned out and how she was represented. And I think they respected, like there must've been enough editors at Marie Claire who respected her and her point of view that they Mm -hmm. said, you know, we want you to share this point of view for our readers. That's great. Yeah. So she wrote about racial representation in film and television and trans women's presence in the beauty industry. She submitted a video about her experiences as a transgender woman to the It Gets Better project. And she's written about it for lots of other publications as well, including Huffington Post and Elle magazine. And then in 2012, she signed her first book deal for a memoir about her teenage years. And that's the book, Redefining Realness, My Path to Womanhood, Identity, Love, and So Much More. And it's the first book written by a trans person who transitioned as a young person. So that's Part of what makes her story interesting is she's not someone who kind of transitioned later in life, I guess. Like she just, she just knew and she made it happen one way or the other Mm -hmm. at a young age. In the author's note, she writes, she is aware of her privilege in writing this book and telling her story. She states, there is no universal woman's experience. And she received some accolades from 
hardcore feminists like Bell Hooks, who referred to her memoir as courageous. The book is a life map for transformation. And Melissa Harris Perry said, Janet does what only great writers of autobiography accomplish. She tells a story of the self, which turns out to be a reflection of all humanity. Wow, that's beautiful. She's very inspiring. Yeah, wow. I love that. And also, you should look her up or Google her, M-O-C-K. It's not M-O-K, it's M-O-C-K. And she's stunningly gorgeous. Just drop dead, beautiful, like Whitney. Could have been a model. Her hair is beautiful. Her face is beautiful. She's a really gorgeous woman. So shortly after signing her book deal, she left People Magazine and she was just building her own career. So she went on to host Take Part Live, her own culture show called So Popular on Shift. She's stated in a Q&A that her heroes and influences have been women writers such as Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, and Toni Morrison. And she began to get some bigger opportunities while she was taping her so popular show. She continued to work with MSNBC as a guest host for the Melissa Harris Perry show. She covered the White House Correspondents' Dinners red carpet for Shift. It's funny that there is a red carpet for that, but you know, whatevs. She's also a special correspondent for Entertainment Tonight. And then this is where you're like, yeah, okay, I've done everything I need to do in my life. Because in 2015, Oprah Winfrey invited Mock to be a guest on Super Soul Sunday for a segment titled Becoming Your Most Authentic Self, where she discussed proudly and unapologetically claiming her identities. And then... Better yet, not only has Oprah invited you, but later that same year, Oprah invited her back and she was named on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list of visionaries and influential leaders. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like once Oprah says you're golden, then I don't know. You've, (laughs) you know, you've done a good job. (laughs) Yeah, you've arrived. (laughs) She's also appeared on... Real Time with Bill Meyer, The Colbert Report, and The Nightly Show. She's in an LGBT documentary, The Outlist, on HBO. And she also started a, known for starting the Twitter hashtag to empower transgender women called Girls Like Us. So she had a second book. In 2017, she published Surpassing Certainty. And... The book's title is an allusion to Audre Lorde, who wrote, And at last you'll know with surpassing certainty that only one thing is more frightening than speaking your truth, and that is not speaking. That is true. It's a good quote. It is a good quote. It takes a lot of courage, to be honest. And it takes a lot of courage in life, to be honest. But I think, how much courage does it take to claim an identity. I I could never imagine what it's like to go through that process of transitioning, but just so much props because there's a lot of bravery involved. That's right. So not sure if you watched this, but the television show Pose premiered on June 3rd, 2018 on FX. And she is a writer, director, and producer on the show. 
She's also the first trans woman of color hired as a writer for a TV series in history. And the show follows the lives of five trans women in the New York ballroom scene in 1987. So this is Pose looks at the juxtaposition of several segments of life and society in New York, the rise of the luxury Trump era universe, the downtown social and literary scene and the ball culture world. And the series has been congratulated for casting actual trans women in trans roles and for accurately depicting a unique queer subculture. These are not in my notes, but I just know they've been nominated for Golden Globes and Emmys and this, the series has had a lot of accolades. So it's been on my to-do list, but I have to find time. Edward is not really that interested in watching Pose or RuPaul's Drag Race for that matter. But Pose has been on my watch list for a long time and I haven't seen it, but in my mind, I imagine it like these dance competitions like so you think you can dance only it's all ballroom and they're trans women Mm -hmm. and it's the 80s so I think that you would probably love it too in 2018 she directed the episode of Pose titled Love is the Message and that made her the first transgender woman of color to write and direct any television episode so There's a lot of firsts going on for her. And in 2019, she signed a three-year deal with Netflix, giving them exclusive rights to her TV series and a first-look option on feature film projects. This made her the first openly transgender woman of color to secure a deal with a major content company. That's great. Yeah, she's kind of killing it. And of course, she she was she's been included in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of whatever year it was mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, recent not this year but pretty recently. So, a couple of interesting controversies I will leave you with. In February 2014, so quite a while ago, she joined Pierce Morgan live on CNN for a face to face interview. And after the show aired, the interview resulted in a Twitter feud between the Piers Morgan live team and Mock. And she accused them of sensationalizing her life, focusing on her personal and physical life instead of her new book, Redefining Realness. And Mock told BuzzFeed that Morgan did not really want to talk about trans issues. He just wanted to sensationalize her life, not really talk about the work that she did and the purpose of writing the book and the purpose of doing a press tour. So there's a a delicate dance, I think, when artists are promoting their work. Like you can make small chat and talk about their life and their personal life a bit. Like that's part of the game too, but you can't just ignore why they're there and what they're promoting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is anyone really surprised that Piers Morgan took it that direction? He's a sensationalist. Yeah, and maybe she knew going in that it could turn out like that. And maybe she knew like no publicity is bad publicity. Either way, she was interviewed after and, you know, the BuzzFeed article ensued and Morgan received criticism, of course, from the LGBTQ community 
which resulted in Mock being invited to come back on the show. And so she did go back and he sort of pretended (laughs) or attempted to understand the root of the criticism. And Mock explained the problem with the way trans people and their lives are represented in mainstream media. Good for her for going back on. I'm not sure many people would. But did it actually resolve or was it just as obnoxious round two? Well, I think the thing is it's giving her a big mouthpiece, right? It's just giving her more opportunity to actually say what she's trying to say. I don't think any of this controversy hurt her cause. Okay. She's she's kind of walking into the show to talk about the book and she's getting faced with a real life example of the crap she has to deal with all the time. Mm-hmm. And as to address the controversy, she also appeared on the Colbert Report where Colbert, because he's amazing, skewered Morgan and gave Mock space to speak about her book advocacy and the need to listen to trans people when they declare who they are. Great. Okay. And one last thing. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. In an interview with Fusion's Alicia Menendez, Mock and Menendez flipped the script and used the Morgan interview as a teaching lesson by putting Mock on the questioning end of the interview to flip the conversation around gender. So Mock, as the interviewer, asked Menendez to prove her gender with questions like, do you have a vagina to prove that she is cisgender, interrogating the ways in which trans people are questioned by the media. Wow. Bold. Yeah. You can't, like, this woman is bold and brave and just won't stop. So I can't believe I didn't really know anything about her until a few weeks ago and then started making notes and put her on my list and everything. She's just, I can't wait to see what she does next. Yeah. Wow. What a great story about such a strong woman. This whole episode has been about trailblazers. Well, and last episode too, I mean. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what inspires you and I. But I do think that I think we're highlighting them and shining a light and especially someone like Mock. I mean, I don't know how well known she is. So hopefully somebody is going to listen to this podcast and maybe say, oh, that's someone I'm going to keep an eye on. She sounds amazing. Thanks, Tamara, for sharing that story. I also had not heard of Janet Mock, but I'm intrigued and and inspired now you're a fan (laughs) now I'm a fan of course (laughs) well thank you for bringing some singing to this episode well you introduced me to karaoke and ever since it's sort of like released the kraken (laughs) (laughs) sing in front of a mic all the time uh thanks for listening you you guys the people who are listening to this podcast we do love you we thank you we're grateful for you we are so grateful and thank you for your your notes and your support. Please rate, review, subscribe. And you can follow us at Curl Next Door Podcast on Instagram or you can like us, Curl Next Door Podcast on Facebook 
or curl next door pod on Twitter. We're everywhere. Thanks, Tamara. Thanks, Steph. Bye. Bye.